Good morning. My name's Steve, and I have the privilege of bringing us the sermon reading this morning. It's wonderful to be able to see so many people here and share in God's word together. Our reading comes from 2 Peter, chapter 1, and we're reading verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. It would be great to keep your Bible open as we look at this passage. It's a bit of a shorter one today, uh, which is really nice that we can get into the detail. When I was younger, I used to do a lot of abseiling. Uh, now, conveniently, uh, I couldn't find a picture of me abseiling, but I did find a picture of Sarah abseiling. <laughs> So, now I'm not exactly sure, I'm pretty sure this is Mount Wilson, it's looking over Hartley Valley, if you know it. Uh, it's probably about 30 metres, something like that. But when it comes to abseiling, uh, yeah, we all get, when you arrive, you're very excited at the prospect of going abseiling, you're not so excited by the prospect of setting up. In fact, you're not really that keen on the whole setting up thing at all, until it's time to walk off the cliff. And in that moment where you're sort of leaning over the edge and you're going from vertical to not so vertical, all of a sudden you care about the detail. Uh, so you might not know anything about tensile strength or carabiners or why you use an alpine butterfly, but you hope that the person who set it up does know and that they do care because your life is going to depend on it. I kind of feel that this sermon is a little bit like setting up for abseiling. It's going to feel perhaps more theoretical than practical, but I hope what it does is it helps us to understand who Jesus is more clearly and to have confidence as we trust him and go over you know, the edge as we live life in the world as Christians. So let me pray that that might be true for us. Dear Lord, as we look at your word today, uh, help us to understand what you have revealed about yourself through your servant Peter. And out of that, help us to hear the things that you need us to hear. Amen. If we believe in God, uh, then it would seem prudent to understand what God is like or what does he want for us. Uh, does God have feelings and a personality, or is he you know, more like Star Wars and you know, the Force? Uh, does God have an expectation for humanity? Uh, how we live, how we treat each other, how we respond to our Creator. And so if someone is going to claim to have knowledge about who God is and what he expects, then we better hope and have confidence that he is well-placed to know those things. And if we're going to follow him off the edge of a cliff, or them off the edge of a cliff, then we better be confident that they know what they're talking about and that they've actually got it right. 
And so the opening words of this book are actually really significant. Uh, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So this letter is written by the apostle Peter, so one of the closest 12 disciples who spent almost three years you know, listening to Jesus, you know, hearing him teach. He saw Jesus heal the cripple, heal the blind, uh, calm a storm. Uh, ultimately, he was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus after the events of the cross and to his ascension to be with the Father. So these aren't sort of vague, fortunate, coincidence kind of experiences. They're very, very specific. And that means Peter knows that he's either telling the truth or completely lying. There's not a lot of space for misunderstanding in the middle. Now, either the guy was blind or he wasn't blind. He could walk and now he can walk. You know, those things are sort of beyond dispute. So he's in a position to know the truth, whatever that truth might be. And Peter recognises his role as a servant. So literally the word here is slave. It's the most humble you know, language of someone in a serving role. So he's not writing for the sake of his own glory. He's writing so that Jesus Christ might be glorified. And really, that is the role of every Christian leader. In fact, it's the role of every Christian uh, we all want to be respected uh, in whatever context we're in. But our ultimate goal is for that re- respect to then reflect on us honouring Christ who we follow. So Peter is a slave, uh, but he is also an apostle. And that speaks to his experience. Uh, he was with Jesus for his entire ministry. And it speaks to his authority. Uh, he's been appointed by Jesus to proclaim a message. And the authority of Jesus is established in one word. And it's that word, Christ. So Christ literally means the anointed one of God in the Old Testament. Uh, It's the word for Messiah. And so much of the Old Testament is about God loving Israel and Israel rejecting God. Uh, But in amongst all those ups and downs and the chaos, there's this golden thread of hope all the way through. Uh, that God is going to do something fundamentally different to change the course of humanity. And it's going to involve this anointed one. So when Jesus stands up and proclaims to be the Christ, then this is is huge news. This is absolutely massive. This is something that Israel have been waiting, arguably, ever since the fall. So they have big expectations about what Jesus is going to achieve. But what he comes to achieve is far greater than they imagine. So they're thinking Messiah coming to restore Israel. And here is Jesus coming to restore all of humanity. So uh, continuing in verse 1. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. So here Jesus is described as both God and Saviour. Now we're used to talking about, if you've been around some Christian circles for a while, we're used to talking about Jesus as the Son of God. But it is a huge escalation from what people expected of the Messiah. You know, the idea of God sharing in our humanity, you know, that alone is a pretty wild idea. 
Now, it's one thing for God to want to save humanity, uh, but you can imagine if you're God, if you're all-powerful and, and life is pretty good, uh, then you do that from a comfortable distance. You know, the idea that God would come down and literally share in the dust and the dirt and the messiness of life. You know, I just think, yeah, even the thought of going from A to B and having to walk for days through the desert. If you are God, you're way above all of that. And yet God chooses to share in our humanity. And more than that, he chooses to share in our suffering. But it also raises questions about the nature of God. So in Deuteronomy we read, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So if God is one, then the obvious question is, how can you have a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit? And I don't think there is a pithy, convenient answer to that question, but there are uh, a number of things that we can say. Uh, firstly, the idea of God being one but more than one is not unique to the New Testament. So this isn't just an idea that Jesus thought up to kind of you know, escalate his own sense of significance. Uh, so right back in Genesis 1 we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Uh, there are lots of uh, occasions in the Old Testament where we read about the Spirit of God, uh, but let me just choose one from 1 Samuel 16. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from, the day, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Uh, and David is then later called a son of God in Psalm 2 when he says, You are my son, today I have become your father. Now, that particular description in Psalm 2 is more metaphoric, uh, it's more adoptive language. Uh, but we also see the idea in Daniel 7, where he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So even though we don't necessarily understand how you know, God as one can be three persons, uh, it is there all the way through the Bible. Uh, what we can see perhaps more clearly is how God functions at three, as three in one. So God is inherently relational and is inherently interdependent. So each person of God is creating something unique to the wholeness of God. Uh, the closest parallel we have in biblical language is a husband and wife leaving their father and mother and becoming one. Uh, they don't just bring a unique personality, they bring a unique male and female personhood to the marriage, and they have unique roles. And so in the context of the eternal son, his unique role is to be the righteous saviour and Messiah. And his righteousness is important because Jesus comes to die on the cross as a substitute for us. And so if he's dying on the cross for his own sin and for his own unrighteousness, then there is nothing he can do to help us. But he comes as the righteous one. So Peter expresses it in his first letter like this. For God also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
And so here we have the righteous substitute for us. And out of his righteousness, his death on the cross, there is a response that needs to be made. And that response is captured in that word, faith. Uh, which isn't just believing in God, it's recognising who God is, it's recognising what Jesus has achieved on the cross, and then embracing his love for us. Now, if we come to God as if he's sort of like an occupying force who must be obeyed, then being a Christian is always going to be about compliance, and that's a pretty joyless way to exist. Uh, but God wants more than that for us. Uh, my wife uh, likes uh, when I give her a gift for her birthday, but she preferred if I didn't just do it out of a sense of obligation. Here's your gift because it's your birthday and social convention, so here it is. Uh, there's not a lot inspiring in that. Uh, there's not a lot inspiring if I come and say, here's a gift for your birthday, and by the way, I'd really love a new surfboard. Um, not a lot in that. She would like me to give a gift simply as an expression of love uh, and our love for one another. And that's what God wants for us, and that's what God wants from us. And all of that is wrapped up in this word, faith. It's precious, and it's a faith received. Uh, and that means we are completely dependent on God to give. I think there's at least uh, three major obstacles to faith. Uh, the first is simply Knowledge. How do we know what God wants? And that's part of the theme in this passage. Knowledge comes up a couple of times. And so we know because God reveals himself through his word. But we still need to read it and we still need to understand it. If we want someone else to become a Christian, then we need to communicate that word in a way that they can hear and in a way that they can understand. Uh, the second is conviction. And this is, I think, the real problem. Do we actually believe that it is true? Now, last week we talked about a whole bunch of things that are obstacles to believing. Uh, so we talked about our feelings, we talked about the facts, we talked about our experience, or perhaps as we just live in an overwhelming, overwhelmingly negative culture. Uh, all of those things can contribute to our doubt and can make it hard to believe and to be convinced. But we pray that God might overcome that unbelief. And then finally, as he helps us overcome it, we reach a point of conviction uh, where, we take that next, uh, where we take that next step and actually commit. Uh, now, we have some control over knowledge, uh, but conviction and commitment, uh, they're less about the head and they are more about the heart. And that makes life even more difficult because our heart is a complex beast. Uh, in the words of Jeremiah... The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You know, those words speak to our greatest need, but also the greatest obstacle to us putting our faith in Jesus. Because we are so easily inclined uh, to want to live for ourselves. We don't like the idea of submission, uh, or, for that matter, obedience. Uh, thankfully... God, in his mercy, calls and then moves our heart to receive. And out of that faith comes grace and peace. So verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now we experience God's grace, and perhaps most significantly, at the moment of our salvation, and when we recognise what Jesus did on the cross. But actually our entire life is 
characterized by God's grace. And peace is not simply the absence of conflict. Uh, it's the confidence that, that where, wherever we stand, that we stand right before God. Whatever our particular circumstances around us, uh, that we are standing on solid ground. Uh, so we can have peace even when we are sick. Uh, because in the, in the context of the bigger picture, that even in our sickness, and for all of that uncertainty, uh, we can be confident of our salvation. Uh, we can be confident of peace even if we're in conflict with other people. Because as we come to God's word, as we listen to how he wants us to live and respond, then if we act with godly integrity, then we can have peace that we have honoured God in that situation. So we're completely dependent on God for our salvation and we are completely dependent on God to live a godly life. So verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he's given us his very precious promises so that through them you might participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So what do we need for a godly life? Uh, well, for starters, we need that fresh start. We need to know that our sin is forgiven, that our sin is no longer held against us, that our future is secure. And so we trust Jesus when he promises to pick up the language of, from John. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Uh, we know that we need help to do the right thing, uh, to do what God wants us to do. And so we trust Jesus when he says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And so when we receive faith, uh, we receive the Holy Spirit, and so we get to share in the divine nature. Uh, the Apostle Paul expresses the same idea like this. It's a lofty idea. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So left to our own desires, left to our own natural instincts, uh, we embrace sin and evil. Uh, but if we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit and that changes everything. Uh, so we start to see what is good not according to the world, not according to me, but according to God. And we start to desire godliness. We have a, the Spirit who helps us to be godly. And, and even when we fear, fall short, uh, we have God's Spirit helping us recognise our sin and bringing us to a point of repenting and seeking reconciliation. Uh, we should be afraid of our sin, absolutely. Uh, but even more fearful is when we stop caring. And so we need to pray that God may help us to see it, but also to care. And all of this is true, but I think as you read those words that we share in the divine nature, it can feel a long way from our experience. I think often we feel almost powerless to resist temptation, and sometimes even reticent to repent, because we don't like our sin, but at the same time, we don't kind of want to let it go. So part of the problem is that our nature has changed, but it is not perfected. Uh, so we know what God wants and doesn't want, but we still feel the influence of sin and temptation. 
Uh, we have everything we need. We have the capacity to know what is right and wrong. We have the knowledge to know what is right and wrong. But we also need to have the will. Uh, so we're talking about self-control. We, we can see what we should do, but we also need to make some choices about actually doing it. And that means we need to take some personal responsibility. And that's really where our passage picks up next week. So this week's all about what God has done for us. We then will move on next week to how do we need to respond? How do we need to take responsibility for our actions? But for this week, it's all about who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the promised Messiah, the eternal Son and Saviour. He is the one who gives faith and grace and peace in abundance. He is the one who fulfills his promises and makes it possible for us to participate in his divine nature. He is the one who gives us everything we need for a godly life. And that means we are stronger and more resilient than perhaps we feel. Yeah, our culture says, look inside for your strength. Uh, believe in yourself. Uh, Jesus says, look at me. Yeah, as we think about our grace and peace, that gives us the strength to persevere when we just want to give up. Uh, and we might not feel that we can make much of a difference in the world. Our, our gifts feel you know, pretty humble. Uh, but God in his power chooses... Uh, to leverage those gifts that he has given us uh, so that we actually might do more than we could ever do in our own strength. So if you're a Christian here this morning, here's the, the very bottom line. As we go over the edge, uh, be confident in the one who holds you. And if you're not a Christian today, uh, then can I just encourage you to think through, you know, is there a God? If there is a God, what does he want for us? Uh, what are you trusting in uh, as you go over the edge and you live life? And I pray you might come to a point as we work our way through 2 Peter that you might see who Jesus is, what he has done for us. Let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you uh, for your son, uh, who is your eternal son, who is the saviour, who is the Messiah. Lord, I pray that we might understand that clearly. We might recognise what you have done for us through your Son and what you continue to do for us through your Spirit. And Lord, I pray that might give us confidence in how we live and how we live out our lives for you in the world. Amen.